Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. John, I agree. The Lord speaks to me through food, too. And uh, he's been speaking a lot. And I think he's going to need to start speaking through fasting here pretty soon, because race season is done, and I need some help, man. Um, and I... I uh, um, I just lost my train of thought. What was the word? Prophetic deliverer. That's the summary of all those words that just happened. Sometimes when you get a bunch of words, it's like you're trying to pick and pull what it is so that the Lord is actually speaking. Is it you are a prophetic deliverer? A prophetic deliverer. Bryson Bow, prophetic deliverers. Those are actually the three people I felt like the Lord was highlighting it was Lilia and Bryson Bow. The little prophetic deliverers, but they are prophetic deliverers. That means God has given them a word to deliver others, and they will be free themselves. So, Lord, I pray for Bryce and Bo and Lilia, and there's more. I'm not limiting that, but I really felt like those are the three that the Holy Spirit was highlighting to me this morning. We thank you, God, that you have anointed them to break the yoke of slavery off of people. I thank you that they carry the spirit of Jesus in them to set people free and to help them stay free. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share a scripture with you. 1 Koreans, 1 Koreans, wow. (laughs) One coffee short this morning. If I ever start a day, one coffee short. 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. In September of 1666, In the city of London, it was a time when London was, actually all of England was recovering from a civil war, and they had just reinstated the monarchy after a period of a different kind of rule, and they were currently at war with the Dutch as well. It was kind of a turbulent time in England. Black Plague, anybody know Black Plague, Black Death, was rampant through all of Europe and was in London as well, where You'd wake up one day and not know whether you were going to live to see the next day. They had no cure for it. They didn't know what the cause was. All they knew is people were dropping dead left and right. Sanitary conditions in the city of London were awful. I mean, just terrible. There was raw sewage everywhere. Little did they know that was what was actually contributing to the plague. I think they nailed it down that the plague was caused by fleas that were on the rats And then the rats were there because the sanitary sanitary conditions were so awful. And the once powerful monarchy, the the symbol of strength in the British Empire, was now trying to come to terms with how to lead a people that no longer revered them or feared them. And they were trying to figure out how to keep a hold on their power. They're trying to reestablish themselves in a political climate that had changed. In the church... Less than a hundred years from the Protestant Reformation and from Henry VIII 
leaving the Catholic Church. There's great animosity in the church between the Catholics and the Protestants. And in September 1666, in the city of London, a small fire breaks out in a bakery in one of the neighborhoods. The fire began to spread a little bit, and the man who in the city would have been responsible for organizing the putting out of that fire shows up in his nightgown, takes a look at it, and goes, oh, it's nothing. What he said was actually a little more vulgar about how someone could put out that fire, but I'm not going to paint that picture for you. And then he goes back to bed. Well, the fire began to spread. What they thought was something that would go away very quickly, 10 days to flatten the curve, suddenly began to consume the entire city. Now, because England was at war with the Dutch, who were also kind of sided with the French, pretty soon when the fire spread, all of the conspiracy theories began to happen. This is the Dutch who have done this. This is the French who have done this. And if you're Protestant, this is the Catholics that have done this. Everyone was trying to affix blame on how the fire had started, when in reality it was probably just an accident in the bakery with an oven that was left on or malfunctioning. After the fire, the city was absolutely devastated. Hundreds and hundreds of acres of homes and shops and churches and government buildings were completely destroyed and burned down to the ground. In fact, one of the only two things that survived the fire was the Tower of London and the dome on St. Paul's Cathedral, the giant cathedral inside of London. But the fire was so hot that the lead um, that that held up most of the church uh, in St. Paul's had melted under the intense fire. And the stone buildings, which were the churches, the churches were built with stone where most of the houses were made of wood. The fire was so hot, you think the stones will withstand the fire, but they exploded in the intensity of the fire, and it was like a cannonball going off all over the city. The city was devastated. But once the fire had burned itself out, they found their city not what it looked like. And they had to rebuild the city. They had to figure out, how do we go about rebuilding it? Now, I don't know if you've ever been a part or seen something that's been totally burned out that you have to reconstruct. But you get a chance to do it differently than it was before. But they had to decide... How do we rebuild this city? Do we want to build it back exactly the way it looked? Do we want to make some changes? Are there some things that we just want to leave gone? Just decide, that doesn't need to be built back. We can just do without it. They had to make these decisions. Well, have you ever experienced like a devastating moment in your own life? A time when it looked like, hey, this might be a small thing, but it ended up not being such a small thing. It's just a lump. It's just one argument. It's just something that's small, but it ends up being as devastating to you as the fire was to London. A time when it seems like things in your life that you thought would always be there are suddenly gone. And you're faced with your own life looking at it like the Londoners did and thinking, how do I rebuild after such devastation? Where do I even start? What do I rebuild and what do I just leave gone forever? What do I let stay gone? You see, when you've experienced loss, 
you realize what things in your life really matter and what things really don't. And you get a chance to rebuild. Some things you realize aren't necessarily bad. They're just not quite as essential as you thought they were. Other things need to be burned away and just never return again. Some things that were essential in the beginning, but yet somehow morphed into something else or been lost altogether. But now you have the chance to build them back again the way that they were supposed to be. So what did London do? <laughs> London decided to put together what they called a fire court. And it was made up of judges and prominent people in the city. And they realized before anybody begins to build anything back, we're going to form a fire court that has the power to make decisions on what gets built back and what doesn't get built back. They make a decision on how to build the thing back so that we can correct the mistakes of the past, but yet move forward into where we're supposed to be. Let's make sure if we got a clean slate, what happened was terrible, but what it gave us was the chance to have a clean slate and build things back the way they should be. Well, it's sometimes difficult when you've faced a devastation to even think about rebuilding. You're just, I just survived. I'm... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a little shell-shocked. I still don't know exactly what to do, which is part of the reason that they put together this fire court. And so what I want to help you with this morning is to have a look at how to rebuild. I know that all of us at some point face devastating moments. We face things that we were... Maybe we thought we're going to come many years down the road and they just hit suddenly. Sometimes we're faced with, with great loss. And we're left with a clean slate, but we're also left empty-handed. I want to encourage you that in those moments, there are some principles that I think I've learned in my life and, and, and from Scripture that will help us learn how to build to make sure that what we rebuild doesn't end up making the mistakes of the past, but will also set us on a course for a brilliant future. I've been writing this message this week. Again, I had this whole series I've been working on and just felt like this week, this isn't the week for it, that I'm supposed to teach on how to rebuild after disaster. And then I got a text this morning, and there's a family in our church named the Yeagers, who during the COVID years, remember those? They housed church in their home for two years. We had a few knocks on the door from some police wondering what we were doing, gathering, and there was more than 10 of us there in the room. And And their daughter, Jaffa, 12 years old, been battling cancer for years, and we were believing for her healing. And I get a text this morning that she passed away two nights ago. And so I'm trying to play catch-up this morning, and our youth that knew her very well, I'm trying to get a hold of their parents and say, could you... 
Please tell your kids about this so they don't have to hear it from me from a stage. And so I'm a little bit of a loss for words in those moments. And then I look down at my notes and I see how to rebuild after disaster. And my heart's broken for this family. And yet we know where she is, there is no cancer. Jaffa loved Jesus very much. And though we're grieving on this side, I promise you, she is not. But I want to, re- I want to share a few things this morning that I think are going to help you. But there's also more at play than just our own individual lives of learning to build back after fire sweeps through your life. And I'll share that at the end because I think there's a bigger picture that's at play here. My first encouragement to you how to rebuild is first rebuild the altar. (laughs) You know, last week I talked a little bit about the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. And Elijah was facing a moment where he was going up against an evil king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel had 450 false prophets, prophets of Baal, a false god. And, it, and Elijah was serving God. And so they had the ultimate competition of you build an altar to your God and I'll build an altar to my God. And the one who answers by fire, that's how we know who the real God is. And then the people will have to decide which one will you want to serve. We will serve the God who answers by fire. And so the, the, the Baal prophets build this altar They put the bowl on it, they have the wood, and they call for fire from heaven, and guess what? No fire comes. And so Elijah, now it's his turn. He's given them all the opportunity for their God to answer by fire, and their God does not answer by fire. And so it's now it's his turn. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah's got to do something before he offers the sacrifice. It says, and Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Elijah had to rebuild the altar. Do you know why Elijah had to rebuild the altar? Because the people of God had torn down the altars. Last week we shared about how idolatry can slip into the culture just by the things that you're connected to and associated with. You see, what began with Jezebel was just allowing the gods of your foreign wives into your house. I'm just going to allow it into my house. It can go right alongside my altar to God. They'll just coexist. It's okay. If they had coexist bumper stickers, they all would have had one in Israel. It's all right. We'll just We'll, we'll incorporate that into what we already believe. The problem is, once you begin to worship an idol, it starts with coexisting. It ends with tearing down the altar of the Lord God. Because idols and altars to God cannot coexist. They each demand that the other be torn down. You go throughout all of Turkey. We were watching a Rick Steves documentary. Anybody used to love Rick Steves, the travel from PBS? We were watching a Rick Steves documentary, and he was actually talking about Spain. And I remember being in Turkey. You go through Turkey and you see this building used to be the greatest church ever. Now it's a mosque. You go to Spain and you go, all these mosques were built. They tore them down and then they built a church right on top of it. 
Like it's the opposite story of Turkey, Spain. And, but the reality is they cannot coexist. One must be torn down for the other one to exist. And so the people of God, when they at first just began to entertain idol worship, pretty soon they were tearing down the altars of God. So Elijah, before he offers the sacrifice, has to rebuild the altar. When you have been devastated, the first thing to do is rebuild the offer of sacrifice. It's a difficult thing to hear when you feel like everything's been taken from you. But what's not been taken from you is you. Is you get to lay yourself on the altar of sacrifice. The reliance upon man-made structures and adoption of secular leadership models in the church have at first neglected the altar but then torn them down altogether. The truth is there must be sacrifice because sin must be atoned for. We don't sacrifice animals for sin anymore, but we rely fully on the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the central focus. And Romans 12, 2 teaches us, Therefore, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. There can be no revival without sacrifice. Revival doesn't come because I want it. Revival comes because I put myself on the altar of sacrifice and say, Lord, you have already sacrificed for me. Therefore, I lay myself down on the altar knowing that your fire will consume me, but I will not be burnt up. I become the burning bush that Moses saw where I'm consumed with the fire of God, but I'm not burnt up because you fill me with your fire. But the fire doesn't come before the sacrifice. Fire falls on sacrifice. Fire does not fall on empty altars. So if you want to experience the fire of God, I encourage you to lay something on the altar. I can't create fire, but I can offer a sacrifice. And so when Elijah puts, builds the altar together, when he builds the altar, puts the sacrifice on the altar and calls for fire, God answers by fire. Israel later experiences devastating loss because they slip into idolatry again. It's kind of a bad habit of theirs. And so as punishment, they're overtaken by a nation and led into captivity. And they spend all these years in captivity knowing that we are here because of our idolatry. But yet even in the midst of this devastation for them again, God moves the heart of their captor king who allows them to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Actually, they called them back to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed. And so this contingent comes back to Jerusalem. They come back under the auspices of rebuilding the temple and then rebuilding the city. And I know we love the book of Nehemiah. Pastors love preaching on Nehemiah because it's all about building together and it's pastors love building stuff. But you can almost get it out of order when you think that what they did is they came back and they built the wall first. Or you can hear about the situation that led to them being sent back and you think, well, they built the temple first. But do you know what they built first? Wasn't the wall, wasn't the temple, and it wasn't the city. Ezra chapter 3, verse 3. 
says, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. When these exiles returned, they knew that the altar of sacrifice has to come first. Offering yourself is difficult when you've been hurt and left abandoned. I get it. When your spouse has left, when you've lost a loved one, offering your heart back up again is not an easy thing to do. But it's the only way to be made whole again, is to entrust your heart to God. You've got to put yourself back on the potter's wheel. You know, the Bible actually describes us as, as like vessels, right? Jars of clay that, that hide this treasure. Sometimes the clay of me just gets shattered and just gets broken. My name is actually Clayton. Nice to meet you if you didn't know that. And my name is referring to the scripture that I'm about to read to you right now. You see, when, when your life gets shattered and you feel like you're in pieces, you can't put yourself back together. It's time to crawl back up on the potter's wheel and allow him to reshape you in the image that he had in mind. Psalm 40, verse 2 says, He brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He brought me out of the clay. I am clay. He brought me out of the miry clay, the slimy pit, another translation says. He brought me out of this devastating place and put me on a rock. Or in other words, he put me on his wheel. And he began to spin this wheel and began to shape me into what he intended. (laughs) Romans chapter 9 verse 20 says, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? There's been many times that I'm stuck in the back of economy on a long flight and I think, Why did you make me like this? Six foot eight with long legs. I don't know why. It has nothing to do with my message. Just thought that. First world problems, right? You're flying in the air like a bird, and you're complaining because you don't have leg room while you fly in the air like a bird. First world problems. Anyway, the point is, when you've been shattered, put yourself back on the wheel. And don't come with instructions for how the potter is supposed to remake you. Let him do his work. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Trust me, the potter's plan for you is way better than the pottery's plan. (laughs) Way, way better. We were in Turkey and we went to this pottery making factory and Liam got to make, make pottery. And you've got the master potter who makes his jar and then Liam gets a chance to make his jar. And I watched his... I love my son, but his jar didn't look like the master potter's jar. Leave your life in the hands 
of the master and stop telling him what you're supposed to look like. Because what he, create, he creates is beautiful. The second thing, how to recover from devastation, is you need to remember what God has said. For some people, you have to discover what God has said. In Ezra's day, they had lost the book. They lost the Bible. They didn't lose their Bible. They lost the Bible. The only record they had of what God had said they lost. And somewhere in the rubble, they're digging around and find the book of the law, dust it off, open it up and read it. And they're like, oh my gosh, all this stuff we were supposed to be doing and we've been doing the opposite. And they wept. And they're like, no, this is not a day of weeping. It's a day of rejoicing. If we start to offer the sacrifices, we're going to be right back in God's good graces. Sometimes you have to discover for yourself the first time, or you have to remember what it is that God said. Remember the altar that Elijah built back in Mount Carmel? He purposefully took 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's what he built the altar with. The altar with. He wanted to remind the people, you are a people of promise, not a people of wrath. You are a people of promise. This great promise given to your father Israel is still true for you today. And the altar I'm building is a reminder that you are the people of God. You don't have to rediscover yourself, reinvent yourself, find your own voice, find yourself. Just go back and remind yourself of what God has promised to you. I have a note in my phone. It's a very long note. It's every prophetic word that I've been given for me, for my family, or for the church. Well, some of them didn't make the note, if you know what I mean. But I write everyone down because there's seasons in my life when I've got to go back and remember what it is that God said. We had this amazing story of our little dog, Ruby, right? And I won't share the whole story, but um, Ruby should have died twice. She got her head slammed into a sliding glass door and was left on our back deck with blood coming out of her ears and out of her nose and took her to the emergency room and they're like, there's no way she can make it. And yet, I remember Rummy in the bathroom washing the blood off of her hands, us trying to figure out how to tell the kids that we got to put the dog down. And God telling Rummy, I'm going to give you your dog back healed and whole so that you will believe everything else that I've told you. Now, the stuff that God had been speaking to Romy was nowhere near in the natural where we were at the time. Some of those things we're existing in right now as a church, by the way. And yet, with all of those circumstances, it required a miracle for this dog to live, and she lived. Not just healed, but God said healed and whole. Because even though she lived, they said she's going to be brain damaged. We'll have to take one of her eyes out. She'll have a limp. She didn't have any of that stuff. So not just healed, but healed and whole, right? And so we renamed her Ruby Promise. Because every time I look at that stupid little dog, (laughs) she's going to start posting photos on Instagram now. Of me and the stupid dog. You ever seen those posts? It's like he didn't want the dog, and next thing it's like the guy and the dog are best friends. That little dog is a reminder of God's promise to us.
You, you need a ruby. You need a ruby. You need something you can look at that reminds you of the promise of God for you. For Elijah, it was 12 stones that reminded them. You got to realize, all of those Israelites, one of those stones was their family. So they look at that stone and they go, Benjamin, that's my tribe. I am a part of the promise too. It's a reminder. You need a reminder of what God's spoken to you. Maybe it's a note in your phone. Maybe it's a two-pound Yorkshire Terrier that will not shut up anytime (laughs) someone comes to the door. But you need something. You need something you can hold on to to say, this was the time when God promised me something and put it in front of your face. Number three is you got to build a life of prayer and worship. Honestly, Prayer and worship are the best prescription I know. I don't know anything better than those two things. Remember when Jesus turned over the the tables in the temple of the money changers? Do you know what his criticism of them was? It wasn't you shouldn't be selling stuff in church. His turning over the money changers' tables was you have turned the house of prayer into a den of robbers. And I want you to catch, when he says you've turned it from something into something, it's a good idea to pay attention to what the from something was. Let's not focus on what it became. Let's go back to what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. you got to build prayer back into your life. This has been the biggest challenge for me Over the last five years, I don't know why, but I get so distracted away from prayer. The phone can be such a a, a thing that just distracts you or your schedule or your time or your weariness, but you got to build prayer back into your life. When prayer goes out, robbers come in. That's what happened to the temple. But the Bible says we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't exist in buildings. God lives in us. So when prayer goes out of this heart, the robber comes in. And it's the lies of the enemy that will rob the promise that God wants to send to me. They'll rob me of it. They'll, God, I know you promised me this, but as soon as I quit praying, the robber comes in and he steals the truth. He steals the promise. But when you bring prayer back in, you bring truth to the lie, and the lie has to leave. Remember I said, they can't coexist. You're going to have one altar or the other in your heart. They cannot coexist. Remember, prayer is two-way communication. It's speaking and hearing. So when I pray, I'm hearing from God as much as I am talking to Him. It's hearing and obeying. Once the altar's been rebuilt and the sacrifice of your heart has been made, then build back a life of prayer and worship. I remember I, uh, after I finished playing in college, I had the chance to uh, try out for an NBA team. So I was, I was in Los Angeles and was with the Lakers organization for about three weeks. Had never really had a goal to play in the NBA, but I was like, oh, here's this great opportunity. I'm guarding Magic Johnson. I'm 
in Gold's Gym on the off days working out with Lou Ferrigno. Anybody remember Lou Ferrigno? The Incredible Hulk? I'm like, it's just another world to me, you know? And I'm like, I have this great shot. And then they cut me the day before the season started, and I never actually made the team. But I'd end up signing a contract with a professional team in Belgium, so I, I think it might have been the next day I got on a plane and flew to Belgium and got picked up on a team over there, which was great. Good. It was not the Los Angeles Lakers. People ask me, what's it like, the experience you have with the Lakers? I said, probably the best way to sum that up is they flew me out first class and flew me back coach. <laughs> and I couldn't even find the guy that had my plane ticket, and I'm a broke college student. I'm like, if I don't find that plane ticket, I'm taking a bus back. But I remember being in Belgium that year, and I'm in something that's still great, but it's not as great as it could have been. In the grand scheme of things, that's not devastating, right? But for me, like I'm actually watching guys that I dominated in college who are now making $3 million a year, and I'm not. And I'm like, okay, first world problems, right? But still, I realized if I'm not careful, this thing will infect my heart. And so I had this park across the road from my house. It was like a three-mile loop. And I spent the whole year just praying and reading the Word, going from park bench to park bench in, in the wintertime, in the nice weather, and I built prayer back into my life. Instead of turning it into something that was bitter or feeling like I had to prove myself and make it in the NBA, I just went, no, this is a time to reconnect with God in prayer. I need to get on the altar of sacrifice, and I need to rebuild prayer back into my life. And it made all the difference in the world for me. I'm so glad that I did. The last thing is build back a repentant and an obedient heart. Do you know what the first thing was they decided to build back in London? It was that nasty sewage system. It was so bad. But the problem is it was too costly and too painstaking to deal with it while the houses were there because it's all the stuff around and under the houses. You literally had to move the houses to fix the sewage system. They had no way of getting rid of the nasty stuff. But now there's no houses. So you get a chance to go back and fix what was too difficult to fix the first time. And so they rebuilt the entire sewage system and cleaned up the city. Now, regardless of what the cause may be, the plague ended in London with the fire. That black plague, the black death, there was never any more recorded pandemic, epidemic, whatever, after the fire of London. And some have credited the fire of London, as bad as it was, of eliminating plague from all of England. Now really, it was the new sewage system that did it. But it gave them the opportunity to build something back that got rid of a plague. In the church, repentance cannot be replaced by entertainment. Atmosphere can never replace presence. Much has been done to draw people to meetings, but the meetings have no power. So what's the point? In the great revivals of old, the people were drawn to the power and to the presence. Nothing can replace presence. They were driven more by prayer than they were by preaching. And I want to share with you something as we end today. 
the Lord gave me on June 21st, 2016. 2016. I was spending two weeks of, of prayer and fasting. And I was a hike back in the Seashore State Park. Hence the name Seashore Church, if you're wondering. I don't know what first landing is. It's called Seashore. And all the VB locals said, Amen. But I was asking the Lord, Lord, what's, what's going on? What do you have for our future, Romy and me? We had stepped away from where we were serving and stepping into what God had called us to do, but still a little bit unclear about all that was supposed to be. We were just obeying the now word of the Lord. And I said, God, can you give me a scripture to kind of help me with what you're speaking to me about? And he gave me 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11 through 13. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain. This is speaking to Elijah. This is right after the Mount Carmel moment. After Mount Carmel, Jezebel tries to kill Elijah, and he's running in fear for his life. He runs all the way to the mountain of the Lord, a good place to run to, right? Mount Horeb. And he's hiding in a cave. And then the Lord appears to him, and this is where we pick it up. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 2016, okay? I said, all right, Lord, one of the best things you can do when God gives you a scripture, he goes, Lord, what am I supposed to see from this? And he said, the wind. There's a wind that's been happening. The wind is the rhetoric. It's the, it's the saying the right things. It's, it's preaching with no power. It's cranking up and it's going to get worse. And it's a wind that breaks rocks. It's man's wisdom that's getting preached so strongly, but it's just breaking things. It's not actually building. They're empty words. Catchy phrases that get repeated without any revelation. Lies, slander, platitudes to earn man's favor. Lip service to honoring God and others, but they're lips that declare my name, but hearts that are far from me. And he says, and I'm not in the wind. He said, the earthquake. He spoke to me and said, there's an unsettling that's beginning in the church. Man's faith and confidence in structures they have built. And they've put my name on it, but their confidence is waning. People are internally unsettled. And they'll soon be shaken out of the places they once thought, once thought were unmovable. That there's a shaking that's happening in the church. It was beginning to happen when he gave me that word. And boys, it happened more since then. People's confidence in leaders that they fall morally. Whole church denominations have fallen. Some churches have split over the issue of homosexuality. There's a shaking that's happening in the church. But yet God said, I'm not in the earthquake. And then he talked about the fire. And he said, there's a fire coming that will burn away the idols and will destroy the high places. 
When the confidence of man in man is shaken, the fire will burn away the idols they turn to that have replaced my presence. Now I know now God was speaking to me about COVID. When all of the systems that people had to draw people to the church were burned away, suddenly there was no gathering, there was no meeting, there was no hype. All of the things that were being used that were man-made structures to draw people to the church but lacked presence were gone. They were burned away. Just like that fire of London that burned half of London, they no longer had what they used to have that drew people. But I want you to hear this. God was not in the fire. God didn't send COVID into the world to kill people to prove a point. But yet God has given us a chance to rebuild. Because at the end of this, it says that there was a still, small voice from the Lord. That's one of the main reasons why we knew the thing that God had called us to do in the early seasons, which doesn't change, is we need to teach people how to hear God's voice for themselves. You need to hear the still, small voice. Because the wind that breaks rocks will freak you out. The earthquake will freak you out. The fire will freak you out. And if you keep freaking out, you'll miss the still, small voice. You'll miss that sometimes in the midst of a fire, God's voice just sounds like a whisper. But do you know for my kids, no matter what's happening, just the slightest whisper of my voice, and they go, that's dad. I don't have to yell, though I do sometimes. (laughs) I don't have to yell. When they hear my voice, it puts everything else in perspective. Now, Elijah hid in a cave when all of this happened. When God first comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah gets defensive and he says, I'm serving you, but they destroyed your idols and now they want to kill me. Then comes wind, earthquake, fire, still small voice. And God asks him again, what are you doing here? And do you know what Elijah says? I'm serving you. They tore down your idols and now they're trying to kill me. Elijah, the great man of God on Mount Carmel, experiences all of these world disasters. Here's the still small voice. But it never changed him. Make sure that you come out of your cave different than how you came in. You've got a chance to rebuild. If you've experienced devastation, you have a chance to rebuild. The church, the world has experienced devastation. We have a chance to rebuild. But I want to come out with a different report than I had going in. I want to come out not bitter against the world systems, not political, not religious. I want to come out free and whole. I want to come out as a heavenly radical. I want to come out with a prophetic deliverance voice that will set people free. Now look, Elijah ended up getting taken away to heaven. 
like the next scene is him telling him to go anoint Elisha. But Elijah gets taken off to heaven without even dying. He ends up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Moses. Elijah did okay. This is not the criticize Elijah moment, all right? But I want to make sure that I come out differently than how I went in. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that you change us. When we put ourselves on the altar, we can't get off it the same. And I know that fire falls on sacrifice. So as we put ourselves on the, altar, God, on the altar, send your fire and burn away everything that's not built on you. Burn away the hay, the straw, all the things of man that we've put on trying to impress you or trying to win the favor of man. God, burn it away and keep us on fire for you. Set us afire, God. We're believing for signs and wonders and miracles and healing in this place. We're devastated by the loss of Jaffa. We pray for the Jaeger family, Lord God. But we're not going to stop praying for healing. We've got those who have lost loved ones to cancer, and we've got testimonies of people healed. And we are going to continue to push through. We're not coming out of our cave saying, well, I guess it doesn't work anymore. You still heal, you still save, you still deliver. And we will put our hope and trust in you because those who hope and trust in you will never be put to shame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.